0: well let's uh, let's pray, Father, as we uh, come this time, we want to thank you, Lord, for how Jesus um, paid our debt, and Lord and gave us his righteousness and took away our guilt and shame, and Lord has set us free and Lord, I want to add one more thing, and it's become our example in terms of what marriage is to look like Father, while we are seeking to recover your original intent for marriage, Lord, I pray that you'd give me wisdom today as I communicate um, a very deep and uh, a very, very profound um, idea and the role that Jesus plays in that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. All right. Every once in a while, I run across a fictional story I find humorous. I'm assuming this is fictional uh, fiction. I hope it is, but I'll share it with you anyhow. A man was tired of being bossed around by his wife, so he went to see a psychiatrist. The psychiatrist said he needed to build his self esteem and gave him a book on assertiveness which he read promptly on the way home. When he reached this house, the man stormed in and walked up to his wife and pointing his finger, he said, from now on, I want you to know that I am the man of the house and my word, it is law. I want you to prepare me a gourmet meal for tonight and when I'm finished eating my meal, you're going to prepare my bath so I can relax. And when I'm finished with my bath, guess who's going to dress me and comb my hair? To which she sub- replied, the funeral director. <laughs> yeah, the role of gender, the gender roles in marriage, it's a, it's a hot topic. It's a hot button issue today, isn't it? It's a controversial issue. And the question is, is, is there actually a difference between the role of a husband and the role of a wife in a marriage relationship, um, I believe that there is. I believe that there is. However, our understanding, at least in evangelicalism, of churches, those who attend churches like ours, um, has been shaped more by the culture from the 1950s in terms of how husbands and wives interact and their roles it been shaped more by the culture of the 1950s in movies or shows like Father Knows Best than by Scripture. That much I'm convinced of. Whenever we speak of traditional family values, um, that is, uh, that is a, a yellow flag to me and I'm not always sure exactly what someone means by that. But oftentimes, if you give them the opportunity to define it and explain it, it goes back to some 1950s nostalgia that they look back upon and say, yes, we want to return to the the good old days, the way things used to be. And the way things used to be is that the focus was on who ultimately had authority and power within the relationship. And we call this authoritarianism. And it's really, really subtle in terms of how it works its way out. But you know, I was raised in a home that was very, very authoritarian. And I didn't know what to call it at that point, but that was normal to me. So once Kim and I got married, we started out on our honeymoon. And I quickly noticed that as we drove her pacer, AMC pacer, yes, uh, upside-down turtle, it wasn't an upside-down turtle, it was, a roll, it was a roller skate, but anyhow, once we drove that, as, we, as I was driving down the road, going through Arizona, she would inadvertently, she would just reach over and she would change the station on the radio. And I think, what's that all about? And I looked at her once, and I says, honey, I was listening to that. I know, and I didn't like it huh, I wasn't really quite sure what to do with it. And so then I would eventually, I'd give it a few miles because we were on our honeymoon. And I'd change it to another station. And it wasn't long before she would change it again. I thought, huh. But that was nothing compared to the Garden of the Gods incident. When we were on our way to Colorado, we were going to be seeing her family in Denver And I said, let's go by the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs. And she said, no, we don't really have time. Huh. This isn't working out quite like I had imagined it. I wasn't giving that as an option. I was stating that as this is what we're going to do. I'm the man of the house. I'm at least the man of the car at that point. Her car nonetheless. And truth be known, it was her money that we were putting into the gas, all right? I married up. So we ended up having an argument, a little tiff, and that tiff grew and grew and grew. We don't have time to go to the Garden of the Gods. I said, I'm going to go to the Garden of the Gods. So we got to the Colorado Springs, and I promptly... Turned the car to the Garden of the Gods. And we drove through it in like five minutes. I won. It's amazing we've been married 31 years. And she's so glad I have finally seen the light. (laughs) No, actually, I'm glad I've grown up. For me, it was all about authoritarianism, and I didn't really put words to it, but it was really about power and ego. Who had ultimate power in the relationship? And my understanding was, I had the responsibility, and therefore I had the power. And unfortunately, that is what shapes many people's understanding of roles, especially within the evangelical church. With you know our understanding of that. Now, does the Bible teach that there are there is a, there are structures that there are role responsibilities? Yes, but I'll be honest with you. I don't really care if you're hierarchical, or if you're complementarian, or if you're egalitarian in your understanding of those roles. And some of you are looking like, "What are those?" Don't worry about it. Um, If you don't know what they are, don't worry about it. Um, Because regardless of which position one embraces, if you don't have a core foundation and understanding of what is at the heart of what Paul is trying to get to in Ephesians chapter 5, you will corrupt every one of those roles. I am not concerned about what your position is, as important as that question may be. That's not the focus today. The focus today is not what is your position so much as this, are you a servant? If you're a man, a husband, are you a servant? If you're a wife, are you a servant? And that's Paul's position. That's Paul's what undergirds everything that Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. And that's why he really kind of flows through this chapter of all of chapter 5 into verse 21 where he says submit to one another and that is where I choose. I choose to renounce my self-interests so that I can willingly and eagerly willingly and eagerly serve the needs of another person. I choose, no one tells me, no one can force me to become a servant. If someone tells me, Martin, you must be a servant, that is servitude. It is not servanthood. Big difference. So it begins with our choice, as I spoke about several weeks ago, or i choose to renounce my own self-interests so that i can willingly and eagerly serve the needs of another so he says submit to one another and out of and this is the reason the motivation the origination of where this comes from out of reverence for christ and that in its essence is a call to worship it's a call to worship What I do, how I lead, how I engage my spouse, is a reflection of whom I worship. If I worship my own self-interest, my own ego, my own power, if that becomes the center of my worship and my focus, then that is what will shape how I engage, in this case, my wife, Kimberly. However, if I worship Jesus, if I worship Him, His example, His ways, will shape how I engage Kimberly. So this verse, verse 21, shapes the passion, the heart, the attitude out of which everything else flows from this point forward all the way up to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. It's having the attitude, the heart of a servant, which you take it back to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, comes out of being controlled by the Spirit. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit in one's life. So now you see why it's an issue of worship. So we talked a couple of weeks ago about what it looks like for a husband to submit to his wife through sacrificial love. Today we're going to answer the question, what does it look like for a wife to submit to her husband? How does it look for a wife to submit to her husband? And again, this sermon has been divided into two. As of Wednesday. Okay? In verse 22, Paul says, Wives, submit. And that word submit really isn't there. It goes back and it takes it right out of the verse and the concept of verse 21. He presumes you've read verse 21. You understand what he is saying. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. That's that worship. It begins here. Ladies, you will never be able to exercise submission to your husband unless you are first and foremost worshiping and declaring yourself a worshiper of Jesus Christ. Okay? That's where it originates out of. Wives, submit to your husband as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, how can a wife, or how might a wife, choose to renounce, submit, to renounce her own self interests, so that she can serve the needs of, in this case, her husband? Begins with attitude. It begins with an attitude. And what I'm going to share for you is something that I've never shared ever before. Um, And it needs more reflection, more definition. But I'm excited about what I'm going to share. The attitude is this. Respect his God given role as your husband. Respect his God given role as your husband. Now, what is this headship and what is it that makes it so important in one's life? In the life of, in this case, the wife. What is it, what's the big deal about? headship that paul is pointing to here to understand we've got to look at ephesians 5 which we will but we also must look back at genesis chapter 2 because that's where the concept first emerges okay in genesis chapter 2 we see the first adam the one who was known as adam which is Romans 5 is called the first Adam. But in Ephesians 5, we also see another Adam. We see the second Adam, which is who? Jesus. Okay? Jesus. Now, while both reveal God's original intent for what a husband's role is, In the marriage relationship, the first one really blew it, the second one really redeems it. All right? The first one blows it, the second one redeems it. So, now if we're gonna understand what the big deal is about headship, let's take a look at it. When he, the Bible speaks of someone who is the head, he speaks of someone who is an understanding leader. As one who remembers and is an advocate for the ways of God. For the very term male in Hebrew, me is zakar, which means the one who remembers. Now what does he remember? The ways of God. When Adam was first formed, he was told the ways of God. When Jesus comes, he knows the ways of God because he is God. So he is one who is an understanding leader. He understands the ways of God. The first Adam, as a leader, was to bring order out of chaos He knew that that's what God's role was for him. He was to bring order out of chaos, right? He was given dominion over the world, over all of creation. He was to take and bring order out of wild things. That's why he was given the responsibility first and foremost to name the animals, which wasn't just taking and slapping a label on it. It was more about discerning and defining purpose according to God's will and God's ways. Men were created to have an impact, to bring order out of chaos. Wives, if you want to know why your husbands like to fix things when you bring a problem, it's because of that. We got chaos. I've got a job. I will fix chaos. Chaos has been fixed. We now have order out of chaos. Okay, That's what men like to do. It's like a toy to him. Okay, That's what he's wired for. That's what we do. Unfortunately, instead of order, instead of bringing order out of chaos, He brought more chaos, didn't he? Why did he bring more chaos? Because he forgot or he ignored the ways of God. So instead of being an understanding leader, he became an idolatrous leader. Idolatrous in that he made himself God. He says, I'm not going to pay attention to the ways of God. Instead, I'm going to pursue my own ways. Huge, huge difference. Now the second Adam, which is who? Jesus. Jesus comes along and out of this darkness, out of this chaos, this darkness that Adam created, he brings life. <laughs> He brings beauty. He brings redemption. That's what He does. The very thing that Adam was to bring but failed to bring instead brought the opposite. Jesus comes into the world and He says, I am going to be the ultimate understanding leader. I'm going to be the ultimate confident leader. I'm going to implement the ways of God into the ways of men. That's what He does. Is he brings beauty into darkness. He brings redemption into death. He reverses everything that Adam brought about. One of the roles of headship, one of the roles of a leader, one of the roles of a man in a relationship is to bring. Redemption. Light to darkness. Order to chaos. Men, you have a profound redemptive role in the life of your wife. And you see that explained in, chapter, in verse 20, verses 25 through 31, which we already talked about. Profound Profound. So what's the first thing that a man is supposed to bring? Say it. Say it again. Understanding leadership. If I were doing this again, I would call it redemptive leadership. So you can just change that. The second thing that a man brings along as a result of his headship is unconditional love or unconditional lover. Now, I'm not talking about sex, guys. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about physical intimacy unless you want to look at the meaning or the picture that physical intimacy brings to one's soul. But we'll get to that someday in this series. The first Adam was to be fully and unconditionally present and engaged in a loving relationship with Eve, where he knew her, she knew him, he accepted her, she accepted him. This incredible imagery of of openness, transparency, and vulnerability. Instead, he brought distance, shame, and disgrace as a result of sin. As a result of sin. However, the second Adam, the second Adam brings a furious, a sacrificial, an unconditional love, a presence to to the relationship of the husband and the wife and through his modeling, he brings this furious love That is 100% committed and says, I know you. I accept you. I redeem you. I sacrifice for you. The very thing that Adam was to bring to Eve and to maintain with Eve, but blew it and went the opposite direction. Instead, Jesus comes back and He comes into this situation. He says, I'm going to model for you the very thing that what God originally intended and that's this sacrificial, this steadfast, this redemptive, this holy love that is unconditional, that is sacrificial. That is far deeper than what we can even explain. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the Word and to present her to Himself as a radiant church without stain and wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Adam's love was to maintain the sanctity and what theologians call the untested holiness of their union. But instead, it destroyed it with selfishness, idolatry, creating distance, shame, and disgrace. Jesus comes into the relationship and as a model and as a mentor to men, he says, My love is redemptive. It's bringing beauty into death. Redemption. It's bringing the fullness of God's original intent. You see what I'm saying? It's just the opposite of what Adam's love brought. And Jesus is coming in. And he says, I'm going to show you a new way, men. Through headship. This is the role that a man has. So the first one is this is what? Understanding leader. Second one is what? Unconditional lover. Third is sacrificial provider. The first Adam was to make use of the resources to provide for the care of his wife and his family. But instead, instead, he brought chaos. He brought need. He brought famine. Jesus comes into it. And he provides for his bride. He provides for his bride. Fourthly, it's a courageous warrior. That's the fourth role of one who has this responsibility and this position of headship. Courageous warrior. First Adam was to be the protector of his family. The first Adam was to be the one who would stand between all those who would threaten that which would seek to destroy what God was creating. He would stand and said, this far and no further. Instead, he stood behind Eve and he allowed chaos and death and destruction to enter into God's original creation. The second Adam the second Adam brings redemption. Redemption through the cross. Through his own sacrifice. Through willing to be, be, being willing to give up his life for the sake of his wife. Which in the case of Christ is the church, the bride of Christ. But for us, who would hold or who have this role of headship, he becomes a model of what it looks like and says, you know what, your role is to not just lead, but to die. To die for your wife. Protecting. Guarding. Leading. Leading. From all who would threaten her vitality, her health—that is the role. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam comes in and succeeds. Where the first Adam led into darkness and into chaos, the second Adam comes in. And says, I will take and I will replace and I will redeem that which is broken, that which is in despair. And instead, I will bring life out of it. Through Jesus Christ. And by the way, men, He becomes our example. He becomes our example. We are to be as those who are the head of our families. We are to be the life givers. We're to be the understanding leaders. We're to be the, um, what's the second? What's that? Unconditional lover. We're to bring that sense of safety, that sense of knowing and being known. We're to be the ones who make sure that the provision for the family is taking place. Fourthly, we're to be the protectors of all that is. We're to walk point. We're the point man for our families. Now, some of us may be thinking, ladies, my husband is more like the first Adam than the second. And I want to say to the ladies, every man here knows that. And all the men are probably starting to feel a bit like toads. There's no way I can meet that expectation. There's no way I can meet that expectation of my role of headship. That's why men and women, but especially men, in terms of understanding your role, need to study the life of Jesus. We need to study it. We need to know it. We need to worship Him. We need to be able to go to Him and we need to be able to to say, Lord, make me like You. And then hang on for dear life because He says I'm committed to doing that, amen? I'm committed to doing that. I'm committed to making You the leader you need to be. I'm committed to making You the lover you need to be. I'm committed to making You the provider you need to be. I'm committed to making You the warrior you need to be. you will not be able to do it apart from studying and understanding the life of Jesus. He is our model. He is our model. Not the culture. Not your daddy. He is our model. Now, wives, you have a Huge, huge role in helping your, under, your husbands with this. But some of you may be thinking, how can I respect him? How can I choose to deny my own self-interest so that I may meet his needs, so I may serve his needs willingly and eagerly? How can I respect him if he's more like the first Adam than the second Adam? And my role, my, my statement to you is this, and we'll unpack this more next week. But you have a huge redemptive role in, your, the, wife, in the life of your husband. A huge redemptive role. And that role is empowered and is, and is the fruit of your worship. You respect him unconditionally. And we've talked about that a lot around here but you respect him unconditionally. But wait a minute, doesn't he have to earn respect? Doesn't he have to earn this respect that I give him? I mean, that's what the world would tell us, right? To which I want to say, do you have to earn the unconditional love that you long for from him? No. Because respect, unconditional respect and unconditional love is not granted based upon one's behavior. It is granted based upon one's worship of Christ and then it becomes the fruit of that worship in your marriage relationship with your husband or your wife. That is what it's about. That is why declaring yourself and saying I am first and foremost a worshiper of Jesus Christ is essential to having a healthy, vibrant marriage after the intent of the scriptures and after the intention of God. But you do have a huge role in empowering him to become the kind of man, the kind of head that he needs to be. And it's huge. In Genesis chapter 2, we read this. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. And you can circle alone in your Bibles, because this is the way things were originally intended. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. He's incomplete. There is no way that your husband can fulfill his true masculine identity, his true masculine purpose apart from you, apart from a role in your life. And I know that raises huge questions about what about those who are single. And we'll get to that in this series at some point. But it is not good for man to be alone, for I will make a helper suitable for him. I will make a helper suitable for him. This term helper is a powerful term. We see a helper as someone who's sort of like a a junior member or an apprentice who does the dirty work, don't we? Someone who just kind of waits for the orders to be given and says, well, would you go and do the work that I don't want you to do? Sort of an internship. That's not what it is. That's not what it is. This word is, is a word that is powerful. It is a word that is used to describe the role of God in the, in the lives of Israel. When it says, I am your helper, he is saying, I am bringing to the table. I am bringing to the table resources and ideas and, and, and um, uh, talents and gifts that you don't have but you desperately need. It's a completing, it's a completing, but it's almost always used of the role of God in the life of Israel. So if you wanted to take it in this way, you could. I play the role of God in your life (laughs) in this one sense. He cannot live out his role as the head that he has been called to apart from your effort your efforts. He says says, you are his partner. You are his partner. A man does not have all of the resources that he needs to be able to fulfill this role in life. And if he is going to be able to fulfill the role of helper in your life, or if he's going to be able to fulfill the role of the headship in your life, he desperately needs the resources that you bring to the table. If he is going to re- fulfill the role of a masculine man in this world, he needs the resources that you bring to the table. Desperately. That's the idea of what he's getting at. That's the idea you bring capacities, strengths that he desperately needs. I am who I am, not because of I am, but because we together are. It's not like I am one brick on top of Kim, who is another brick, and I stand superior to her. It's like we are a cord wrapped together, a rope that is wrapped tightly together. You are his partner. That's why Malachi chapter 2 calls you, ladies, the partner in the relationship. But more than that, and as or at least as important as that, is you are his champion. You are his champion. And I want to end with this. This idea, you have a lot of power in his life. A tremendous amount of power. And that power can either build him up and equip him and strengthen him, or it can destroy him. That's how much power you have. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4, it says, A noble wife is a crown to her husband. Hmm. Well, it must be because he's such a great man, right? It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that he's doing everything right or he's this great and powerful man. It just says he's a husband, But she is a crown. A noble wife is a crown to her husband. What's that all about? Well, the whole idea of nobility is someone who carries a lot of strength. Strength because of her influence, strength because of her character, strength because of her presence. She is a strong and she is a competent woman. A noble woman is a strong and a competent woman, is the idea but beyond that is the second idea, and that is she brings strength to her husband. She doesn't use her own personal strength to elevate her and to lift herself up. She doesn't use her strength to control or dominate her husband. She uses her strength and she gives it to her husband. Now how does that happen? Well, we'll talk about that next week. But She gives that strength to her husband to build him up. And to give him courage. And she builds him up personally. And she builds him up socially. I was talking with someone recently. And this woman just said, I'm so tired of women cutting down their husbands. Speaking evil of them. Degrading them. Many times behind their backs. But sometimes even to their face. And it just offends her. doesn't mean that what you're saying isn't true. No. It just means that what you're saying shouldn't be said. It shouldn't be said. Your words can bring life or it can bring death. And that's Proverbs' point. A noble wife is a crown to her husband. She builds him up. But but the wife who acts shamefully is like rottenness to his bones. That means, how does she do this? Through the words that she speaks in Proverbs. Through the words that she speaks. And if she speaks, speaks words of disgrace, Words of death, it's like it enters into his soul and it takes away the very structure that he needs to be a man. And you may be thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I'm punishing him or I'm, I'm trying to help him so he'll stand up and be the man. Through the criticisms that I'm giving, but you got to understand, it's not helping him. It's destroying him. And next week we're going to talk about power struggles. Is one of the points that we're going to talk about. And just how dangerous that is within one's life, in one's marriage. You may not see the effect because a man is going to kind of hide. He's going to hide. He's going to hide the pain. But you've got to understand, the effect is there nonetheless. And it's going to come out sooner or later. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. And then it will be too late. And this is a truth that I will leave you with. A man who is deflated at home will, be, will feel defeated in life regardless regardless of how successful he looks on the outside a man who is deflated at home will feel defeated in life regardless of his portfolio regardless of his position at his job regardless of his position within the community if a man does not have a wife who is using her strength to build him up at home. He will walk out, and regardless of how successful he may appear, he will experience defeat in life. He will say, I am a failure. Or he may not say it, but that will be how he experiences life. So ladies, I want to ask you this this week to do one thing. In the words that you speak to your husband, just monitor them. Monitor them. And what percentage of the words that I speak are building him up and affirming him versus tearing him down or telling him what he needs to do different? It's kind of, If you could set a tape recorder, just hear that, play it back at the end of the week, what would you, how would you evaluate your speech towards him? Your speech towards him, how would you evaluate it? Is it building him up? Or is it tearing him down? If you want a husband, who's going to be strong, the the, the leader that he needs to be, the lover that you need him to be, the provider that you need him to be, the warrior that you need him to be. The pathway to make that happen is this, through the power of your words. Okay? You carry a lot a lot of power now what happens if we have if you have a husband who is not really even know the lord or is not really even interested in being anything other than the first adam versus the second adam that's going to be part of next week's discussion because you have the power to influence change In his life. Okay? All right? Do you all come back next week? You hear? Okay. Let's pray. Father, as we seek to understand how this all works together, Lord, I pray that you'd bring clarity. Lord, I pray that you'd bring conviction. Lord, make us men long to be more like the second Adam, Jesus, than the first Adam who blew it. Lord, may our wives help us understand and encourage us in being more like Jesus than but like Adam. And Father, we long, we long to see relationships that are healthy, vibrant, and reflect your original tent in growing ways. And Lord, I would ask that you would make that a reality here amongst us. And even, Father, even in my own life. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.
1: We can listen to a sermon like this and, all, and just feel deflated in some ways. Because we recognize all the stuff we're not doing. you know, I, I know I identify with the first Adam, very much so. And I also know I can't be the second Adam. And so when we look at a sermon like this, it's fitting that we sing a song like that afterwards, because it's all about him that we need: a righteousness: I cannot be the husband I need to be. my wife cannot be the wife she needs to be without Christ Christ in us and us surrender our life to him and we need to hear these principles and we need to to understand our roles and that's so important but we can't sit there and say well I'm never going to meet it what we can say is through Christ I can love through Christ I can respect so walk away encouraged because we have a God who walks with us, beside us, in front of us, and behind us. We're not alone in our marriages. We're not alone as single people. We have a Savior who understands. We need Jesus more today than yesterday. God, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour, we need you. You are our righteousness, our holiness. Apart from you, we can do nothing. Lord, teach us your ways that we may walk in your truth and recognize it's not about us and what we bring to the table. It's about you and what you've done. Father, give us the right perspective to live for You, to love for You, to respect for You. In Your name I pray.
0: Amen.